It will be easier if you don't resist and much less dangerous if you listen to more monsters, madness, and magic. All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with actor Chris Britton about the stage, X-Men, Mr. Sinister, Forever Night, method acting, and more. As always, thanks for listening. Make sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And without further ado, here you go. and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Right, sir, so just so we have a platform here, Chris, to jump off of, take us back in time to when you were a youngster. Were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? I was probably, uh, let me think now, both a troublemaker and a book reader. School was not exactly my forte until I reached university. I left school and home when I was 16. Then I started to study acting around the age of 17, 18 maybe, at night. And then I got involved with dance. I Mm. started taking classes and I was invited to join a modern dance company in Toronto. And I was with them for about a year, year and a half, got into university in the dance and theater program and then switched over to theater full time in my uh, courses. So you said you were a reader. Did you have a genre or specific author that you leaned more towards back then? Mainly classics, if I remember correctly. I started to read classics early and I have to think about the books, probably, you know, the regulars like Dickens, sort of in my late teens, early 20s. I'm still a big James Joyce fan. Mm-hmm. Was reading plays a lot, Shakespeare, of course, all that. I don't recall reading comic books past the age of eight or nine or ten. You know, here I am back in the comic world in a way. Right, exactly. Comes full circle. So, do you have a, a eureka moment that you can point to specifically? maybe a play or a performance you saw where you said, you know, that's what I want to do, that's for me. You know, it was uh, an older friend of mine. I remember riding in a car and she was in the back seat. And, you know, I was maybe 17, something like that. And we must have been discussing what to do with the future. And she piped up and she said, oh, no, 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 no. Chris is going to be an actor. And I don't know. I still remember that comment. And I and I think that kind of decided it for me. It was, yeah, I think she's right. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I was probably, you know, toying with the idea and sort of weighing the pros and cons or whatever and seeing what was out there. And I thought, yeah, so if I'm going to do that, I better sort of study it and sort of take classes, know what I'm doing. I found uh, that in Toronto and I was studying at night and working at odd jobs during the day. Were your parents involved in the arts at all? No, not at all. No, no, there was really, well, the only sort of background in, in my family, there's quite a well-known artist, Harry Britton, and his work is at the National Gallery in mm -hmm. Ottawa. He died in 1958, and I never met him, but he was good friends with a group of seven painters. He was, you know, a remarkable artist. His, his work is fantastic. I have two of his watercolors. But yeah, no, there was no one else really in my family who was involved in the arts. So I, I wanted to ask you if you recall your very first time on stage and if it went off without a hiccup. And that's whatever you consider it to be, you know, either third grade or whatever. I do. <laughs> it was it was at this theater school, which was in the basement of a theater, you know, once sort of at a period of a year, once or twice a year, he would put on plays, usually classics. And I remember I was in Ibsen's Rosmer's Home. I've just forgotten the name of the role, but I think I was as stiff as a board. I, I, I seem to remember walking out and, uh, you know, I was wearing an overcoat. I remember thinking, well, at least from pictures, <laughs> I, I look as stiff as a board. I don't recall the actual experience, but I'm sure, uh, you know, it was it was fine and I had a good time. But it wasn't until I was in university and doing plays in university. But, you know, funny enough, in between that time, when I was with the dance company, I felt very free on stage. There, there was a great freedom in not having to know any lines. And you were expressing yourself just through the dance and working with a partner. And there was a great deal of freedom in that. And I always, and I think that really helped me as an actor to sort of absorb that feeling. And then as soon as I finished university, I went right into doing regional theater. And, you know, that was the mid 70s we're talking about. And the film and television industry in Canada was just percolating at that time. It, it, it wasn't as big as it is now. So every actor's goal was to be at the Shaw Festival, the Stratford Festival, to do regional theater. That was the goal. I was at both Shaw. I went there as an apprentice when I was in university for uh, the summer season. And then I was a full member of the company. The, the year after I graduated. And then I was at Stratford for a couple of seasons after that. Those goals were reached. Well, you mentioned that you love, that you have a love of dance and obviously you love acting. Did you ever, are you a musical fan? Did you ever venture into that lane? People would pay me not to say <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> I have, I am always off key. My wife who can sing, it's painful for her if I even hum along <laughs> You know, it's just, you know, she says, Chris, Chris, you're just off key there. <laughs> no, I can, I can sort of sing in a group. I can mm. sort of get the, the key. I really wish I could sing because I just think to have that skill on top of uh, acting is, is just a blessing. 
so out of all your stage roles, do you have a handful of, or just one that would you would consider your favorite one you had a lot of fun playing? Well, I did a tour uh, of a one-actor play on Albert Einstein. Oh, and wow. That for a couple of years, I toured from one end of Canada to the other. I went to Boston, I went to Louisville, Kentucky, to be able to play that, uh, that character, uh, that man, was wonderful. And I revived it 15 years ago, I think, uh, in Vancouver for uh, a week's run at a theater. You know, that certainly is one of my favorite roles. And I have to think about other ones, but you know, there have been, what makes it really good is of course in theater is the cast that you're working with, that environment and the theater itself. That's a real joy, I think, for an actor because some of the relationships you make in those rehearsal periods and the run of the, the, the run of the play, sometimes they last all your life. Still in touch with actors I knew at Stratford and Shaw and plays in Toronto and regional theaters. You know, it's that's really special. And while we're kind of on the subject of the cast of the play, is there... Is there an actor that you've worked with? It doesn't have to be on stage, could be on screen, but is there a, someone you've worked with that you've been in awe of, like just of their talent? And, you know, you're just like, man, who is this person? <laughs> in terms of recognizable names, uh, certainly Robin Williams, Forrest Whitaker, Martin Freeman, all those, I have scenes with them all on my demo reel. I spent a, a lovely day with Donald Sutherland. Those actors, you know, that people would recognize their names, they're certainly, uh, you know, I enjoyed working with them. They were humble and honest and just easy to be around. And needless to say, their work is always, you know, terrific. What did you work with Robin on, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, it's a, it was a film that I felt should have had perhaps a, a wider recognition. It was a film called Final Cut. And it was a bit ahead of its time, really, the the, the director. The director was young and he also wrote it, Omar Naim, and it's basically sort of a future story about when you're born or even when you're in the womb you can have a chip sort of implanted in your brain that through your eyes records every moment of your life. So when you die there is a man who is called the cutter and he takes that chip and on a editing or cutting machine he takes the prime moments of your life, your birth through the canal, first opening your eyes and your wedding, the first time you see your child, etc. But the, this one chip that he is editing, played by Robin Williams, he witnesses a murder and the person whose chip it is murdered this person. So that starts off the story. And I thought that was really an incredible idea. Yeah, that sounds really... I'm not familiar with the film, but now I'm going to watch it. Final cut. I played the brother of the fellow who committed the murder. And we had a couple of... Very, uh, Jim Caviezel is also in it. Hmm. And is it Myra Servino? I can't remember who else. No, I think so. It sort of... It didn't quite hold together in the last 20 minutes, half an hour, and I think that was the reason why it didn't quite get the recognition. But uh, I thought the idea was brilliant, and it was a very different part for Williams. He was very serious. One of his restrained roles, you know, dramatic roles. What year was this? This, I think, was... I'm just trying to think now. I might be confusing it with something. I think it was around 2000 and... 
I was in Vancouver 2004, gotcha. 2006, somewhere around there. I'd have to look it up on IMDb. thought this young guy who wrote it, and he was, you know, given, I think, the budget of $10 million to direct it. And he was, I think he was barely 30. And he got Robin Williams. I think people had felt it had real potential. It was shot in Vancouver. Jim Caviezel had just filmed that film where he played Jesus. I'm pretty sure it was just after that where he played Jesus. I'm definitely going to check that out. That sounds very interesting. So, Chris, uh, as an actor, does your approach differ depending on whether you're on stage or on screen to a role? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, basically, the basic approach is to find the truth of the moment and the and to be honest in each moment and to that's, you know, whether you're on stage or in front of a camera. But usually, unless you are playing the lead or unless you are playing, you know, a, you know, a role that is quite large and requires a great deal of study, the theater gives you that opportunity because you've got the rehearsal period and then you've got the run of the play. But you know, and, and usually for an actor, a character actor like like myself, you're you're brought in for an episode or two episodes or three episodes. Uh, you know, for you have to sort of really do your homework and be know what you're saying, and I mean the subtext behind it, which you can create. And sometimes you don't even get the whole script, so you have to, in a sense, create your own reality. Your imagination fills in the blanks, but the text is the core, of course. That's your jumping off point that's where you have to really focus on and fill in the blanks of the relationships between the characters that are in the room that you're talking about talking to so you know with film you have to always think of you know for the most part being shot from here up because you know when you're auditioning these days as it's all self-tape you know since COVID it's you know all the self-tapes are from here up, you know, you have to have the emotion behind it, the reality behind it, uh, the words you're speaking. And on stage, that also applies. But, you know, you have to reach back of the house, depending on the size of the theater. Right. <laughs> How far do you go personally with the backstory to characters and such? I know some folks keep a journal and maybe they'll come up with a whole list of things of why their characters are the way they are. What about you personally? How far do you go with the backstory? It depends on the it depends on the script totally. I mean, and and the relationship with the other characters. Many scripts, you know, you're you're filling in the blanks because the script doesn't fulfill that, and that's why when you do read a script, that you think, oh my God, this is good because there is back store and you can fill that in further to make it more personal so yeah you 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 do your work you do your homework you create the reality that helps you get to where you think you should be but when they say action of course know your lines backwards and forwards and but always to allow for you know the unexpected script changes or something you know the other actor you're you're with throws you you know a, a different reaction that you hadn't even imagined well as i always say when i'm in a in a voice studio be loosey-goosey <laughs> right yeah you just have to be relaxed you know because some actors you know you're with you know they'll switch a line around the cue won't be the same you know whatever and so you have to you know always be prepared for that and and just go with the flow well said how did that first initial transition from stage to screen happen for you 
I think it was it was gradual because uh, in Toronto there was a few series that were being done. The first, at least on my IMDb page, my first film credit, film or on-camera credit, is David Cronenberg's The Brew. And I just, I think maybe I had a line or two. It's credited as Man in the Auditorium. When I was, you know, as I mentioned to you, when I was 16, 17, I was doing odd jobs and I worked at a, uh, what was a famous record store in Toronto called Sam's. And uh, David Cronenberg worked there for uh, briefly. He was at U of T, at the University of Toronto. And we... <laughs> We were in charge, I think, of the rock department or something. <laughs> well, vinyl records. You know. So we're talking 67, 68, something like that. And uh, so I think, you know, David probably, you know, said, hey, do you want to do this, you know, just a year or so, you know. Uh, and I said, sure, you know. I think that was his first film, I think. So that's how it started. And then there were a couple of TV shows that were going on in when I graduated from university in 75. But that wasn't until maybe 78, 79. You know, when you have an agent who wants to make money. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, working a couple of days on a on a television thing, you know, it, it, it's fifteen percent or ten percent. It's it's hey, it adds up. Just scrolling through your, you got some classic TV shows for me. I just want to touch on a couple of them, see like what your experiences were on them. Forever Night. <laughs> you recall that one? Oh yeah, I do uh, because I still have the the vampire teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, I don't recall that much about it. That was a very popular show. Uh, I love that show, you know, and it's it's hard to find these days. It's one of those cult, you know, one of those cult classic TV shows. I think I transitioned into a vampire. I think that was sort of the, the plot. That'd be fun to dig that up and look at it again, you know, but because uh, I don't remember that much about it. I, I, I do have an image because I, I there's a photograph of my teeth, you know, and me sort of snarling. So I, I remember what I looked like at that moment, but I don't remember the exact plot line. That's going way back. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> have you ever been a part of a show that you were a fan of beforehand? Well, in Vancouver, Da Vinci's Inquest, Nicholas Campbell as the coroner. My wife did the first four seasons as the pathologist, Patricia Da Vinci. And I didn't come into that show till season six or seven. And it was a very popular, well done show. Shot in Vancouver. Glad to be a part of that. I had to audition for that show, I guess, over the seven seasons, six seasons, about eight or nine times. And I remember complaining about that to one actor, and he said, Chris, I had to audition for X-Files 13 times. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay, you got me beat there. <laughs> Was that William Davis by any chance? <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> no, <laughs> smoking man. I love him too, you know. Canada's got a lot of talent, you know, especially, you know, I talked to a lot of actors, and then you learn just how many talented people come out of the toronto area you know it's just a very condensed area filled with people who can act <laughs> you, got, you know uh, ryan reynolds uh when he was uh, lived two doors down in this condo we were in and when he was shooting that series 
two guys in a pizza or something. Like yeah, something like. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and he he used to drive up. He loves Vancouver, and he had a dog. We had a dog, a lovely guy, and he would drive up for a, from L.A. for a long weekend to Vancouver. And Toronto's my hometown, hmm. so I go back there a couple of times a year to work. I, I worked on Lock and Key just recently. Did five episodes of that. Yeah, but my daughter's there as well, and so I. I certainly try to go there a couple of times a year. So, Chris, let's talk X-Men. Initially, was that your, was it a typical audition, right place, right time situation? How did it happen for you? Well, you know, I don't recall the specifics of, of my audition, but I do know this. They did a round of auditions, I think in Toronto, and they weren't happy. The word got out, someone said, look, you know, the language of X-Men requires perhaps actors who have had a theater background and so they enlarged the audition pool i had done you were talking 91 92 and i had done you know a fair amount of voiceovers and so they they enlarged that audition pool and a number of actors like myself who had done theater came in and auditioned a number of us got the parts i don't recall exactly my audition for because you know we're talking 92 that's a long time ago yeah yeah uh, i think the the other thing I recall is I think most of the time I may have been in with maybe one or two other actors recording, but I remember a number of times I was really in the studio on my own, uh. Uh, you know, just doing my lines. I, I just think it's remarkable that 30 years later, a number of us are back doing the same voices. Well, we all had to re-audition. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, when you think about it, 30 years? Yeah, uh, voices change, you know. Voices change, you know, energy changes, you know, uh, but most of us got our characters back, which, you know, we were all, you know, glad to hear. And they've, you know, and, and you know, some, yeah, I think, and rightly so, they wanted to mix up the, the mix of, of, of the, of the uh, roles, you know, make them more diverse, culturally diverse. And but still keep uh, you know the some of the original voices to to for the fan base. Yeah, fans appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. The online, you know, the, you know, you read. Oh, I hope there so and so is still doing that voice, and you know, I hope you know. So done ten episodes. Sinister is in. Well, I won't say. I'm not going to say how many. But <laughs> NDAs and all that, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and I recorded one episode here in L.A. and the rest in Vancouver. And then the other actors I know in Toronto and one in Nova Scotia. So, it's you know, we're all over the place. Speaking of X-Men, I just spoke with uh, Ron Rubin and Lawrence Bain, your uh, colleagues on the show. They mentioned the same thing that you just said, that how they noticed that X-Men was more akin to the theater. Did you notice that uh, when you started reading the script yourself, that it was a bit less cartoony? Well, certainly I think Mr. Sinister is, is falls into that bracket because, you know, I, I did some voices on a couple of, you know, like kids cartoons and this is not that. Right. You know, this was a much more, it's an, it, it appeals to an older demographic, I think, you know, because of the themes. We're really a, a bit ahead of its time. You know, some of the, the, the conflicts and the subjects that are brought up and the relationships, you know, it, it wasn't, uh, what's that popular? one that was around at that time sailor moon it wasn't sailor moon right so, no it wasn't. Uh, um, and it's not my little pony no uh, 
<laughs> you know, you got uh, in the early on in the first season of X Men, you got one of the major characters morph just he's dead. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There was some, you know, sort of dramatic changes in the scripts and the direction of some of the characters, and I think it. But it worked. I think that that really held the fan base along with the theme, the musical theme. Uh, one of the, probably the best ever. <laughs> It'll be interesting to hear the new voices. I mean, it's extraordinary when you go to you know Comic Cons. Now we've got parents coming up with their <laughs> with their kids. Yeah. Who are, are rewatching it? So you know, it's it's kind of interesting. There's you know two generations. Yeah. Of, uh, are, are really sort of invested in, in, in watching it. It's really, you know, a blessing in a way. It's, it's you know, it shows the, the script was really, really terrific. And when did you first hear rumblings that they were bringing it back and that they may have an interest in bringing some of you guys back? A year and a half ago, because I think I recorded my first episode a year ago, just this past December, when I was down here in L.A. So I think I was cast maybe in the fall. So that would be 2021. 20, 20, yeah, 21. I auditioned, you know, they sent the the sides, and I auditioned in my little home studio in Vancouver. And um, You still got it. Yeah. <laughs> still sinister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure, you know, there'll be more requests for Comic-Cons now uh, once it's, I think, airing in the fall. Do you recall being given much direction for The Voice early on, or did you just kind of nail it and that was that? I probably, I probably, there was, maybe there was some initial, maybe a suggestion or two, but with the text and the, the I think, think I was shown the illustration and that tells you a lot you know if you go with those two and you know and you're somewhere in the ballpark you can refine it to have a little bit of you know they can say you know maybe heighten it a bit or tone it down a bit or you know we want a little more gravel in the voice or whatever you know when you're in the ballpark I think I don't know who else auditioned for it I do remember the studio you know meeting a, a number of the actors and the in the green room or waiting room, you know, to audition. Chris, uh, so what would you say is the best acting advice you've received in your career and who gave it to you? Well, you know, I went to New York in the 80s. I was fortunate enough to study with Uta Hagen. She was the toughest to get into and the least expensive. You had to audition to get into her class three times. The third time you got to audition for Udahog. And I think if I remember correctly, it was only $65 for three months. And the class was maybe, they only took, I think she only took in 15 actors. That's a workable side. You could get up every week and do a scene if you prepared. And I remember after every scene that I, I did with a fellow actor, her question was, how do you feel? And it made you reflect on yourself. You know, you'd think, did I feel, did I feel I was being truthful? Did I feel I was listening to the other act? And so I always remember that question. And I remember one of my responses was, once was, like the first day of rehearsal. <laughs> I think because I was kind of, I didn't sort of accomplish what I had set out to do. I felt maybe I was, you know, I don't know, nervous or just, you know, just was out of sorts or whatever. But I always remember that question after pretty well every scene. How do you feel? And, you know, to observe, you know, to be, you know, at the after you've finished your scene, 
Think about what you did. Be more truthful. Be more honest. Be more present. Stop thinking. Just be in the moment. So just to put a, a bow on everything, Chris, I'm not going to keep you all afternoon here. What's on the horizon for you? What can you share with us without getting in trouble? The only thing I've got going right now, well, I just did two auditions in the past uh, week and a half, so you never know. I think they've announced that season two is coming up uh, for uh, X-Men. I don't know if I'm in it, but one would hope. I've got a... Uh, limited series TV series that I'm you know that I've uh, written and trying to get that off the ground is a true crime drama and there's a one actor show that I'm seriously I've been collecting material for based on a real person which I won't mention you know so there are things you know basically I'm 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 lazy <laughs> I need to uh, get cracking uh, <laughs> On these uh, projects, so, uh, you know, spend more time on them. You know, uh, just see what happens. Oh man, well, Chris, I thank you. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time again, man. And it's been a pleasure. Yeah, I'll yeah. Uh, send you a link when I get this uh, edited and post and all that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Have, have a good rest of your night. Yeah. You too. Right, bye bye. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Chris. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day all with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.